0: Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll be start with Jaws. Uh, Released on June 20th, 1975, Jaws is directed by Steven Spielberg, with a screenplay by Peter Benchley, who also wrote the book, Uh, and a gentleman by the name of Carl Gottlieb, who was a comedy writer and an actor. He actually has a part in the film, uh, and he's most famous at this time for writing for the TV show The Odd Couple. And also, we want to mention that the Jaws features an Oscar-winning score by John Williams, one of his best.
1: The film was edited by Verna Fields, who won an Oscar for the film. She also worked on American Graffiti, uh, earning an Oscar nomination for editing,
0: and Sugarland Express. And the cinematography was done by Bill Butler, who worked on The Godfather, The Conversation. Uh, He had received an Oscar nomination for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he worked on three Rocky films- Uh, Rockies 2, 3, and 4, and many other films that you've seen and probably really enjoy. So we're going to go ahead and, speaking of Bill Butler and cinematography, talk about the cinematography of Jaws. And uh, Matt, what are some things that you noticed about the cinematography of this film? So the first thing that really jumped out of the film for me was that
1: so many of the frames had a sort of depth to it. And so as I was watching the film... You could see like the main character would be on the right-hand side, kind of on the right third line of the screen. And then in the background, you'd have characters talking or doing something. There seemed to be this great depth uh, just with almost all the composition in the frame where there was multiple things going on and multiple points that you could kind of be paying attention to, kind of different panes where in the first layer you have you know, the character talking and the background, you see something else going on. And that was the first thing that really jumped out to me. Uh, Along with that, and I think kind of going with it, uh, the movement, the camera movement was pretty extraordinary. And there were so many scenes where it started in one location and then you have movement either by the characters or by the camera or a lot of times both. And then it would reframe, uh, with them doing something else. And so a lot of the takes were, it seemed a lot longer uh, than some of the recent films we've been talking about. And I just felt, it kind of felt refreshing to me where it, it wasn't a needless cut. They didn't cut back and forth uh, just because two characters were talking necessarily. Uh, but there were a lot of times when, uh, there, there were a lot of phone conversations early on in the film. And uh, there, the way that Spielberg and uh his cinematographer handle that is by having the characters move around in the environment and it gives a sort of 3d depth to the location and this is something that you know because we we've just kind of finished wrapping up talking about star wars this is one of the things i I feel like the prequel movies struggled with was having a three-dimensional depth to the locations where it felt like the characters were kind of on one plane of existence. And there were many things going on around them, but it didn't have that kind of natural depth that the original trilogy, and I think the sequel
0: trilogy, do a much better job of. Yeah, you know, speaking of that, there's there's one scene in particular uh, that you talk about the camera not moving a whole lot uh, with conversations. Uh, when, uh, when Mrs. Kittner is confronting Brody uh, after they catch the shark that they think ate him, it The camera just lingers. It's a close-up on, on Mrs. Kittner, the entire conversation. And it's a one-sided conversation, you know, where she's just berating him, you knew, and she's blaming him and right before she slaps him and all that stuff. And she's at the center. The camera's over his left shoulder, and they do not do a shot-counter shot, which we're, we're so used to seeing, like, let's show his reaction. Let's show him getting ready to say something. Uh, but it doesn't do that at all, which I found fascinating, that it's just very long lingering shot on her. And then even after she finishes, it pulls away to a wide shot of Rhodey and he's standing there with the mayor and, and uh, Hooper's there as well. Uh, but at, n- at no point do you get you know a close-up of his reaction. So it's just some really interesting uh, choices that I that I saw with that. I also felt like in some ways the film was kind of claustrophobic mm-hmm. in the fact that there's very little sky. The way the camera is set up uh, is that it's very low, and I think the, probably to uh, to emphasize the water aspect of it. A lot of the shots, on, like on the water, it's you see a, quite a bit of, of water below, mm-hmm. very little sky. But even when people are walking around town, I, I'm used to seeing much larger glimpses of the sky. But most of the time, it's you know walking around with like mid shots um, of the of the characters. But it doesn't. The cameras really set low so much. And sometimes you know the cameras. Uh, actually in the water, which gives you that kind of immersive feeling. I think it did an excellent job uh, of making you kind of feel that paranoia and the fact that, you know, Brody, for the most part, is trapped in this situation. That's kind of what I got from that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, two other things that really stood out to me, there's uh, one shot, and I know you'll know uh, what I'm talking about. When Brody's sitting on the beach and it's roughly 30 to 40% of the way through the film, And he's kind of resigned himself to they're not going to close the beach. They're not really going to listen to me. I got to kind of make do. And when the people realize that there's a shark in the water and they have that uh, camera effect with the lenses and and the dolly zoom. And it just it's it's an amazing shot. And it gets uh, done quite a bit in, in other films for that kind of shock and awe. But I think Spielberg does it really well. Uh, that 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 sense of of kind of wonder and amazement. In this case, it's it's a negative connotation, but it's this kind of shock and awe that Brody is in, and the camera totally sells it. And it's probably the most if you you know if you say what's the most famous shot from Jaws, it's probably that one shot. I mean, you know, we're talking about cinematography, uh, so I absolutely love that. And um, the other one is is when the mayor is trying to convince Brody uh, that the initial shark attack um, was a boat accident and they get on the, the little ferry. And the whole thing, I'm pretty sure, is just one shot. And I want to say it's it's a couple minutes long. It's, I think it's one of the longest, if not the longest shot in the whole film And again, it's this example of the camera moving with the characters and the characters moving and reframing each other as the conversation continues, because there's kind of like an initial resistance that Brody has. And then as he kind of softens and he's talking to the other characters, he kind of gradually cedes ground to them and the camera gets kind of pulls closer and closer to Brody and the mayor until finally the mayor kind of pulls them in and the final framing is those two huddled close together and the mayor's kind of like, look, you're, you're going to do what I tell you. And I think that right there is just, it's a style that is, I, I would say, I don't see as much anymore. And I think a lot, of, a lot of films, at least a lot of films that I watch, have a very edit-happy kind of kind of style not that it's bad but it was just fun to watch a film that kind of went in the opposite direction and if you didn't need to cut they wouldn't cut
0: yeah no i think that's a great point because you know we think that great editing means i've spliced a lot of shots together but sometimes it's the knowing just to leave it that makes it great editing and i think that jaws is a great uh, a great job with with building tension with those long shots and choosing very specific shots. Uh, I'm really glad you brought up the Dolly Zoom shot, too, because I had that, too. I'm like, this is like the greatest thing ever. It's, it so brings you in. Um, but my other favorite shot in the film is, uh, and we'll get to it with dialogue, is is when uh, Brody is chumming the water and Jaws pops up. And it's a close-up on Brody's face and then Jaws, fought, I'm calling him Jaws, I don't know if that's his name, but the shark, <laughs> right, pops up in, in the left corner. And, and what's great is, I think even better on a second watch or or later watches is they duplicate that. That's actually the second time we've seen that shot. We've seen it another time. And every time I watch him, like, is this the time where he pops up? Uh, And he does this a bunch of times where, where shots where it's like a red herring, you know what I'm saying? Where this shot where like something bad is going to happen and then it doesn't. So then the next time it happens, you're, you're kind of relaxed and then something horrible happens and it you know that has that great jump scare. Dean does such a great job building tension just through those uh, those types of shots and, and when it's close up like that you can't see everything and so you know you get to see what the filmmakers want you to see and it's very little at those times. It's almost a horror movie trope.
1: Yeah. where you know you have it's a, it's like a fake out where their the tension is up and you're expecting something doesn't happen. Maybe it doesn't happen a second time, and then the third time it does.
0: Right. the The last thing that I wanted to talk about with cinematography was the color, uh, because I did some research on this and saw that Spielberg had asked that there not be any red in the film, other than blood. And the only only instance you get of that is there's um, the life uh, the the lifeguards have like the red jackets, but that's it. Other than that, there's no red clothing. There's not like a red bicycle or anything that stands out. But there's a lot of yellow to kind of replace that. And yellow, you know, from color theory is like happiness, optimism. And, you know, one of the most glaring examples of this is Alex Kittner's little raft that he goes out on his little uh, inflatable mattress, takes it out there. And then of course, Jaws does his thing with him. And then what comes back is this deflated yellow mattress covered in red blood. And it's this contrast of happy optimism. And no, it's actually horror. You should have been paying more attention to what's going on. Uh, You even have, like, the mayor's sports coat is a yellow coat after Alex Kittner dies. And so you have this, we're going to say it's one thing, but it's clearly not underneath the surface, this contrast between those two colors.
1: And I think that's that's one of the reasons why the movie works so well on a story level is because you can relate to kind of being that person who's in the middle of things. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the COVID situation and uh, authorities... Maybe having some mixed messaging and wanting things to appear better than they maybe are to not cause a panic and to make sure people are doing, you know, good business and things like this, you know? And it just seems real. You know, that Verisimilitude. Yeah. You know, that 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 feeling of this feels true to life and kind of putting a happy face on a kind of terrible situation.
0: Yeah, hey, I had that same thought, and you know, that was one of the. I had my, one of my final thoughts was, you know, is one of the themes of this film that you know commerce is more important than safety because that's very much the mayor, and it's not, um, you know, clearly he's set up as as a fool. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to sympathize with him, but it, I think it's you know the dangers of of choosing, you know, anything other than safety, like safety should be. Your, your first priority, and well, it's I, not for that guy.
1: And I think that, you know, you're not you're not really supposed to sympathize with him, but it does make sense, like, from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, he, his priorities are misplaced, but his, you know, his job is to make sure that the town thrives. And without, as he says, summer dollars, you know, Amity's a summer town. They, they won't survive if they don't have, and even Quint brings it up. You know, when he makes the first offer to hunt the shark, you know, it's like, if you don't hire me, then you're going to starve in the winter. And so, you know, I think there is a real fear there. And I think that's also what makes me appreciate the film is that he's, (laughs) it's not a villain who's just evil for the sake of being evil. He has a motive. Now it's wrong, but it's still there.
0: So let's go ahead and transition into sound and I had the first thing that that I that I liked was the muffled by water sound effects that there was a lot of that. And I mentioned earlier that the camera is is in the water a lot to kind of give you that uh, immersive experience where a little splash up against it where you almost feel in some of the scenes uh, like I'm thinking of like all the the people off the beach they're out swimming. You almost feel like you're in there. The water can get in your eye and you, you're gonna go underwater a little bit and you kind of have that muffled kind of paranoia again, that very immersive uh, experience. Uh, Between that and then Quint's fingernails on the chalkboard, man, that's just such a great uh, reveal of this character and an introduction for him that he just doesn't give a crap. And I'm going to get your attention, however obnoxiously it is. Yeah,
1: and I I, I feel like the sound effect and the music are both used as transitional elements from a sense of safety to a sense of danger most of the time in the film. Um, You have uh, William's iconic score, and that is meant to increase the tension of the film, you know, in, a, in an audible way before really anything has happened to any of the characters. But uh, the, the, the chalk scratch is kind of a transition where the, the focus turns to, to Quint. Uh, there's a moment on the beach when, you know, they have the whistles and the whistles go off and everyone panics. Uh, there's obviously the screams and the splashing by the, the victims uh, who get attacked. So I just I noticed that a lot of times that they use music or sound cues to transition from kind of one sphere of either attention or safety into another sphere of attention or danger.
0: Yeah, and we know we talked in an earlier episode about uh, you know the special effects and and in this case the lack thereof that you can't really show the shark, and we know it was notoriously difficult production and that the shark didn't work for most of the film. And so you really, but it works for the benefit of the film, right? The fact that you can't see it is actually scarier. And so you do have uh, the theme, just, you know, just two notes. I mean, how genius is it? That's just two notes uh, that stands in. You hear that and you know, the shark is there. And as much as we talked about leitmotif kind of signifying kind of the, that you should be thinking about this character or this theme with 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 jaws, those two notes absolutely mean the shark is there, and somebody's going to be in big trouble for that. Uh, the scene I love with that uses that masterfully uh, is when you have the two boys with a fake fin going through, and people are saying shark, shark, but there's no music. And if you're paying attention, you're thinking, okay, well, that's prob that's a little weird. Maybe that's and then of course there's the big fake out, and that's you know total red herring. And I love that scene so much because there's like everybody calms down and then the music kicks in <laughs> and it's like, now it's on, now he's in the pond, you know, people are going to die and uh, it, that's just so, it's so great. Um, the music is is so effective and it's, you know, it's it it's almost, you know, it's to almost to its detriment that we think, well, it's just two notes and it's just that one song. And so, you know, how could the music really be that good with this film? But it's used so masterfully and it's not just the two notes that it uses, you know, There's, uh, there's also, uh, when, when Hooper finds Ben Gardner's head, like there's almost like a little psycho riff just to kind of, cause it is like, it's a horror film that we're in, you know, what kind of film is this? It's well, now it's a horror film. Uh, and then I really love the, uh, when July 4th happens and there's like all this like kind of happy, upbeat music after people have already been dying. And there's like this dramatic irony of like all these people are just lining up for like a buffet. And we're supposed to look at that and go, you guys, what are you doing? But they're all happy and ignorant.
1: Another moment that caught my caught my ears was when uh, early in the film, uh, I believe it's the mayor and Brody are having one of the very first conversations about the attack. And they're walking. or maybe Maybe it's not the mayor. Maybe it's his deputy. But they run into like a parade. <laughs> and you've got like the drummers and everything going on. And the music almost drowns the conversation out. But to me, that was just saying like the pageantry of the weekend was overriding the 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 worry and the concerns of of Brody, and so that was just like a little moment of of kind of uh, cinematic language storytelling that I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, it almost works like a silent film, right? Mm-hmm. It's that same kind of thing where that music can manipulate you. Uh, I also like the use you mentioned the the band music, so the diegetic music in this movie. Uh, is, is sparse, but I think it's great. I love that there's people whistling, again, oblivious to what's happening. Um, Quint is, you know, I think, characterized beautifully by his his song that's like his kind of his way out of, you know, his farewell and do is kind of his way out of every awkward moment that he's in, or he just likes to make it more awkward. And then it's, it's used um, as part of, it's used as instrumental music later uh, after he overworks the boat, just kind of like, yeah, you didn't take things seriously enough. And now you're going to pay for that. And I always just love the the show me the way to go home part, where it's they're just they're singing and they're having a great old time. And and again, it's kind of like that fake out with the the July Fourth music, where it's like where like as soon as you let your guard down and you're like having a good old time with the singing, well, you shouldn't have been paying attention, but you weren't, and now here it comes. As far as performances,
1: I I thought the performances were largely uh, fantastic. But I think the person who really steals the show for me is Quint. And <laughs> I see you nodding. Um, I love Quint. Yeah. And there's there's a couple moments. But I think the one that really grabs me is the story of the Indianapolis. Is that right? It's yes. The, yeah. Uh, when he's kind of going on, they're, they're showing off their scars. And it's a great camaraderie moment. And so I love that as, like, character work where these people, three people who have, and I'll come back to this later, but they have tensions between all three of them, but they kind of find their common ground. And it's this, you know, bonding moment between these three men out on the sea on this hunt. And it kind of devolves into just the camera lingering on Quint. And you mentioned earlier about not cutting away. It does cut away a few times, But for the most part, it lingers on on Quint and it's almost spellbinding the way the gravitas that he has uh, telling that story. And I think that is fantastic acting when you can kind of spin that story in those lines and you can just have the camera be still and just linger on you and that's all you have and you're entertained. That's fantastic. I mean, you talk about performance, that's amazing to me.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a thing that I've, I've noticed the more times I watch it and the older I get is just how clearly drawn these three characters are. And when you're little and you see the film, it's just it's three guys out on a boat. Uh, but now it's, you know, and it's maybe Quint. You might recognize the fact that Quint is a little off because he is, you know. So Quint is Quint. We talked about him, but, you know, Brody, he being afraid of water, what a great character note. You know, and he's out there because it's his duty yeah. more than it is anything else. You know, Hooper is, you know, he's curious. You know, I think he's more about the science. And I, I think I find it fascinating that he's very, very smart. And he has a very, like a whip smart sense of humor. He's gallows humor a lot. Uh, but he's got a very weak stomach. I found that fascinating too. He does it a couple of times. with uh, The first, you know, the first time that he sees uh, Kittner's body. And you can see him starting to freak out a little bit. And like, let me have some water. And he starts talking kind of fast. And uh, I love I love his line. Uh, he says, it's not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. I mean, did that, like how beautifully to kind of sum up where the movie's at at this point. Like, he's freaking out. And little again, gallows humor. It's not Jack the Ripper. It's not a joke. You know, this is what's happening. This is real for him. Uh, and he's an expert, and we should listen to him. Of course, my favorite line in the film is, you're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think that's everyone's favorite line. And knowing, of course, that this is not a real shark, how great of a performance is it? Um, seriously, how great of a performance is it from Roy Scheider to just stand back and be – he's so quick in the, his, his movement. And then to back up and to just be like, this is all I can get out of me right now is – Is this and we're we're in trouble and you just believe it and i think that's just the the primary thing as much as as little as we see the shark that these guys sell it so well that they're in mortal danger and that this they have a serious job to do
1: yeah and uh before i forget there's a line uh, from brody because you mentioned that he's afraid of the water and i believe it is i believe it's hooper who says like it's it's kind of crazy that You know, you're afraid of the water, but you live on an island. And he basically says, it's only an island if you look at it from the water. Yeah. And I I just love the kind of oxymoron in it, but like it Mm -hmm. it makes sense. Uh, I I just think that's a a brilliant line. But yeah, I I think it's also really fun that you take the main character, and a very simple story writing technique is to uh, throw a character into their personal hell. And for someone who's afraid of the water, What would be worse than being forced to go out on a small fishing boat with an insane captain and a very preoccupied scientist? And you can't, I don't know if it says he can't swim, but he's certainly afraid of the water. And, you know, he's very, very nervous and he doesn't know anything about boats. But there, and then there's this tension between the two people who do know about boats of this kind of new school versus old school. Uh, They are both very egotistical men. Uh, Hooper, with his scientific and advanced knowledge in the sonar and all, you know, the closed caption cameras and everything, and you have Quint, who's this kind of old-fashioned New England fisherman. And so, you know, even something that they should be kind of agreeing on or, or, you know— on the same wavelength on there, there's a tension there. And then there's a tension between those two and Brody because he can't do anything right on the boat. And so there's this kind of wonderful tension between the three characters and the boat itself and the water and the shark. And so every character and Jaws has this element of tension with each other. And I think that makes for some really fantastic storytelling
0: because there's there's a lot to work with there yeah i'm not going to add to that because i had but why just leave that that's that's awesome so uh, setting and design uh filmed on location because it's the 70s right so they're filmed in in martha's vineyard on an island and it's an island regardless of where you look at it uh and it's in the ocean almost all of it is actually shot on the ocean which is ridiculously hard to do as spielberg found out pretty quickly and a lot of you know, filmmakers have found out. I mean, that's why Titanic cost as much money as it did, or one of them, one of the reasons, uh, except for a couple of scenes. And I think it's pretty easy to figure out which scenes are in swimming pools or tanks, um, like when uh, Hooper's in the in the uh, in the shark cage, for instance. You know, you you couldn't do that uh, in the ocean. And same thing with uh, finding the head and the shark tooth. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, it adds to the realism again that you have. You know, it's the movie's about three guys on a boat in the middle of nowhere and and, in middle of the ocean. And it's really three guys and camera crew, whatever, um, in the middle of the ocean. I just love that it's
1: in some ways it's it's two different movies a little bit, because uh, you mentioned that line earlier about Hooper saying that it's not Jack the Ripper. But in my mind, when I heard that, I was like, but it kind of is because this is very much like a creature feature like this is very much like a horror movie where the shark is a slasher <laughs> like you know it has a, a, a like a knowledge it's sen- sentience is is clearly there it's more than just a shark um and and so like you know the first half is this shark prowling the waters searching for victims and then it kind of transitions into this uh, adventure film where these the three guys go off and and sail off on this adventure to go hunt the shark and save save the town and i, I just kind of enjoy those two parts of it because it just lends to two different vibes uh on the
0: movie yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I enjoyed the beginning of the movie just fine because it's it's done so well, and I I love the rapport between all the characters. Even watching you know Brody kind of fight with the mayor, but then as soon as they all three go out there, it's like, oh yeah, this is what's going to happen. And now I get to just sit back and enjoy these three guys just playing off of each other. And you know the thing with the barrels. I mean that's my big mm-hmm. thing with props. It's just, sometimes it's really hard to figure out what kind of props you want to look at, but the barrels are basically a stand-in for the shark. You know, you see, you see those, again, yellow, right? Back to that yellow color again. It's supposed to be happy, but it's like you see those and that's not good. And it's amazing that they're just like dragging some barrels along the surface of the water and we're like, oh, crap, there's a shark. <laughs> you know, it's so effective. Uh, and I love the foreshadowing with the air tanks. It's, I, it's at least two times where they almost collide or go off. And, you know, Brody is very, um, he's reprimanded. Now, you know, be careful of those. You know, it's very much the Chekhov's gun thing, right? These are explosive. Hey, guess what? These things are explosive. And then you get to the end, they're like, "Hey, maybe you should explode those air tanks," and of course they do. But um, just brilliant, brilliant use of some very specific props. I gotta say,
1: uh, I think, I think the shark is most effective when you don't really see him. Uh, I, I do think the the prop itself doesn't quite hold up as well. Um, it's still entertaining. And and I still love it, but uh I, I think it's a case of less is more for it. When you just see the fin, uh <laughs> I think it's a little scarier and I think it works a little bit more effectively. Um but yeah, I think the because I thought about that too when I saw the barrels. Like it's it's pretty extraordinary that you can create tension with three floating barrels, like coming towards a ship. But it works really well. Um I, I do think that they uh, set up the, the oxygen tanks at least twice. They're in a couple more shots, I think. Uh, they're not directly mentioned, but they're there. And so that is really great um, uh, prop work. I also think that um, there's a couple shots on the boat where you see... Um, <laughs> there's one shot that always stands out to me when Brody is walking along the, the edge and his boot kind of slips off. And you just realize that there's this kind of – it's almost like they're on the edge of a knife uh, when they're walking along this ship, especially Brody, um, where it's like there's not really much margin for error. Like this is a tiny little ship uh, when the, the the fire starts and everything starts kind of going bad and the ship is starting to die and smoke and everything. That's kind of, to me, the the ramp up in the tension because things are coming to a climax as the ship begins to die, the characters are in more and more danger and they're kind of running out of options. There's only so much more that you can do.
0: Yeah, I also wanted to mention uh, a little bit with set decoration, uh, how we see things, look, uh, shots lingering on on items in, in the boat downstairs jumping up and down as the shark rams them, which reminded me a lot of the water in Jurassic Park. Mm. And I really feel like He cribbed from himself a little bit when he does when he does Jurassic Park. That again, it's the less is more. Like we never see the raptors until the end. It's a lot of it is reaction of the actors to portray like what kind of danger and how fearsome these creatures are. Uh, But I saw that I was like, that's a great. And again, we don't see the shark in that scene at all. Right? All we see is like uh, the wood being cracked. We see the things inside the boat jumping up and down. We see the terror on the actors' faces. But again, we don't see the shark. But we don't need to. It's way scarier to be thinking what he's doing. Uh, yeah, because really, we talked about like when the shark works and when it doesn't. I think, obviously, that you're going to need a bigger boat scene works because it's, only, it's out of focus, too. And that's another brilliant thing, right? Focus is so tight on Brody's face that when the shark pops up, you only get a glimpse of it. And then I think in the shark cage, that one works for me. When when Hooper's in the cage and it just keeps ramming at him and ramming at him and it's just teeth just jump and you see Brody's the close up on Brody's on Brody's Hooper's rather Hooper's eyes repeatedly and you're like yeah I, I feel you I'm with you I'm in there with you
1: I also think that it speaks to the fact that a lot of times something that's scary is a lot scarier before it happens or before it comes Bef- like the 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 precursor is worse, like worrying about what's going to happen is almost worse than the thing itself. Because once the thing is there, you can spring into action, but it's the not knowing that really tortures the person. And that's, I think, what Spielberg does in this and in Jurassic Park really well, because you don't know exactly when it's coming, where it's coming from, what's going to happen next. You know, that moment when the shark finally, uh, like, jumps up onto the, the, the back of the boat, it is eating quint. It's like it's right there in front of you. You know it's not gonna come up and sneak up on you from behind. But when like when you said, when Hooper's in the water, there's a shot where it's that the dark, murky water, and you can't quite see where the shark is. And to me, that's the greatest point of tension. That's the greatest point of fear when you don't quite know where it's going to come from. Once it's there, Yes, it's scary, but it's not quite as bad as not knowing where it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, you even get a little bit from Quint's dialogue with him, you know, being this, you know, awesome shark hunter who's done it all and seen it all that you can see him puzzled. Mm -hmm. And he even makes comments about, I think he's under the boat. You know, it's like if he's worried and he can't see it and he's worried about not seeing it, then I should also be worried that I can't see it. And that just continually, you know, builds the tension. So with characters, is there anything we, we haven't talked about yet? Um, Not really. We're, we're I mean, like, I think that's,
1: that's kind of something that we've kind of talked about the whole way through. Yeah,
0: I think so too. I think, um, you know, there's a small cast in this film, which again, works to its advantage uh, that you get to know these characters really, really well and, and care about them a lot you you really you're rooting for for all of these guys even even quint i mean you know, he he does some really strange things uh i was puzzled for a very long time when i was younger about why he destroys the the radio you know and and looking back at it now I mean, there's actually two things with the radio i mean kind of going back to props wrap a second uh where he calls in and it's like yep no we still haven't found him it's like you know, he's right there and it's clearly he's he's going to take this on himself you know he is he's cap full-on captain ahab here yeah that he doesn't want any help and it doesn't matter like what kind of dangers and it doesn't really doesn't matter what happens to him he's just going to face this no matter what whatever happens and then you know he gets eaten yeah. which is a brilliantly shot i think you get for, it go, the camera work there too just back and forth and you see him slide in such a great moment man i'm just just thinking about that like you feel nervous and you feel tense like watching him slide slowly down and doesn't linger on the back and forth and the sharks face in his face. So
1: I think for me, uh kind of, you know, a last final thought is I just think it's really fun to have a main character who is afraid (laughs) and has such like a obvious character flaw. Um and you know that's kind of uh kind of an internal conflict that he has to come over. Uh and you can, you know, obviously see that by the end. Um he utters a line something like, and I used to be afraid of the water. Or something like that. Just kind of signifying that like he's kind of finally conquered his
0: fear. And I just think that's like a really cool last little bit. Yeah, the last line, I I wrote this down. The last line of the film is is Brody says, I hate the water. (laughs) And Hooper says, can't imagine why. Yeah. So as we close,
1: we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or you can email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com.
0: And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies.